chapter 7. We're finishing up chapter 7 in the Gospel of Mark today, and we're studying another miracle of Jesus. So, as I mentioned in the prayer, one of the greatest reasons we have to study these miracles of Jesus is that they teach us what we as believers have to look forward to in eternity with our King, Jesus. So these miracles, they, they kind of serve as like snapshots of the kingdom that, that will be and, and that will be a part of for eternity. So when we're reading the Bible, here's what we're learning. We crack open the book of Genesis and we, we learn how God created everything and it was good. And then sin, sin entered creation and corrupted everything. And it broke everything and so now we experience things like suffering and there's fallenness and brokenness in this world as a result of sin this is what we learn immediately when we crack open the bible by the time we get to the end of the bible the book of revelation uh, specifically it tells us about how all of this will be made new again how god is going to redeem his creation and, and we're told that sin will be eradicated it will, it will be no more there will be no more suffering no more fallenness no more brokenness no more no more tears and so when we try to comprehend that though it's pretty tough isn't it like when we start to think about eternity and and start to think about what it would be like to exist in a reality without sin that's hard to do that's really hard to do what would that be like how would how would you describe that to someone I mean it's just not that familiar with, to us. We are familiar with sin. We are familiar with a corrupted reality. And so, you know, feelings of anxiety, worry, de you know, depression, uh, all of those things, that feels natural to us because we live in this corrupted reality. So trying to comprehend a reality without those things, we're kind of like, well, what, what would we even do with our time? How, what would this feel like? Well. When we study the miracles of Jesus, we have a snapshot as to what the kingdom will be like. So what is the kingdom like according to the Gospel of Mark? Well, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like men, women, and children being freed from demonic oppression. How many times in the Gospel of Mark have we seen demons cast out of someone? Someone who has been brought to Jesus because of demonic oppression and he's freed them from that. We have, I mean, just right out the gate, I mean, the man in the synagogue. We have potentially Peter's mother-in-law, as we discussed. We have the legion of demons in, in the Decapolis. And, the, and then last week, we even studied about the Syrophoenician's daughter uh, who Jesus healed. So being a part of the kingdom in eternity, it'll be like being freed from demonic oppression. What, what else do we learn about in the, in the Gospel of Mark? Well, being a part of the kingdom, it's like being healed from every kind of sickness and disease and, and injury. It's like a... It's the kingdom of God will be like a leper's skin that is full of leprosy and then made new again. The kingdom of God is like a paralytic who's able to suddenly walk again. The kingdom of God is like a man with a withered hand who is instantaneously able to stretch out that hand and it, and it be completely new again. The kingdom of God is like a woman who has bled for years and years and years, 12 years, and then suddenly, instantaneously, she is cured of that that's what the kingdom of God and eternity will be like it's like being freed from all of that sickness and disease and injury the kingdom of God it's going to be like being suddenly freed from harm you know how many times have we seen well twice we've seen uh, the the disciples on a boat 
in the Sea of Galilee with their life being threatened by a storm, and Jesus miraculously calms that storm. And so being a part of the kingdom of heaven, it'll be like out of, we're suddenly out of harm's way. We'll be at peace. So the, the kingdom of God that is to come, it's like the reality of death itself being undone. It will be undone, like Jerry's daughter um, who was raised from the dead. And, and the eternity with God, free from sin, means being free from death. Death will be dead in eternity. The kingdom of God will be like having every need met. And just like Jesus feeding the 5,000 men and their families. And so we've, we've learned all of these miracles and we're getting little pictures of what eternity will be like all of the time. And so... Uh, and and we're, just, we're just seven chapters in and all that has happened. But here, centuries before Jesus even began his earthly ministry, his prophets would prophesy about eternity and what it would be like free from sin. And they would say things like this. This is Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so what Isaiah ultimately prophesied about, the life of Jesus provides snapshots of when we study these miracles. And so the miracle we're going to study today is another snapshot of the kingdom to come. And it's, it's this, it's the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is the last uh, seven verses of chapter 7, and it's this fascinating moment, this really unique moment moments. Very unique things are taking place in this moment in the Gospel of Mark. And what's uh, another thing that's unique about this moment, it only appears in Mark. And so you won't find this moment in Matthew, Luke, or John. It's only in Mark. And so that's a really rare thing to happen because almost every single one of these moments are in at least two of the Gospels. Some are in three, and, and there, there are a few that are in all four. But this is a moment that is exclusively in the Gospel of Mark. So let's get going here in Mark 7. Let's just take verse 31 to get our bearings. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon, sorry, for the region of Tyre, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. Now, you may have already noticed something really exciting today at the journey. We have a map. We have done it. It took 26 sermons in the Gospel of Mark, but we have a map. You know, I'm kind of sad in some ways because I did enjoy using our imagination, but we have an actual map to show what we're talking about here. Now, we are zoomed in on this map, so you can remember my really good map before. We have now zoomed in to the, to the top left-hand corner of my old map to this map. And we have things on here like the Mediterranean Sea. And then you get, you get the, oh, I need a laser pointer. That's what I need. That would really just be the cherry on top. So you, somebody can bring me one of that or one of those next week. Okay. So we're, we're, you see Galilee up here. You see the Sea of Galilee. And we, last week we studied where Jesus, he um, healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter of demon oppression. So she was from the area of Tyre and Sidon. She was kind of Phoenician, kind of Syrian. She was a, a, a ethnically both. Uh, and she lived up in that area. This is where Jesus had been to get away 
from Jewish population because this is predominantly uh, Gentile uh, territory that he's in right now. But now he's in the region of the Decapolis. And so he's traveled from Tyre up to Sidon. I believe that's around 20 miles. And then he's gone all the way back down here past Bethsaida to the Decapolis. Now we're talking about a 120-mile journey from Tyre and Sidon all the way back down to the Decapolis. And so what happened in this 120-mile trip? I mean, a lot of things could have happened. And so this is one of those gaps that take place in the, in the New Testament as we get this play-by-play of the life of, of Christ or a synopsis of the life of Christ, as they're known as the synoptic gospels, right? The Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. Um, this 120-mile gap of time we're not told anything about. It reminds me of the verse in John that says, now, we're, uh, now there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John tells us that in his gospel, because he's saying not everything Jesus did was recorded. Not every miracle will you even know about. But we, no doubt, it's, it's fun to think about how many things could have taken place in a 120-mile walk. All right? But Jesus, he's going from one predominantly Gentile area to another predominantly Gentile area. So there are Jews in both of these places, but not mostly. Most of the population are going to be uh, Gentile. He's down in the the Decapolis, and, and he's staying away from heavily Jewish populated areas, we know, for a couple of reasons. One, he's been attempting to get away from the big crowds. When he's in a uh, heavily Jewish populated area, you got tens of thousands of people showing up. He's afraid the, the crowds are going to crush him, right? They have to take safety precautions. The, the crowds are so big at times. He's fed crowds of upwards of 20,000 people uh, miraculously. And so he, he's getting a, getting a break. He's no doubt probably getting a break from the crowds, but also getting a break from some of the debates. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're starting to follow him around and hassle him, give him a hard time criticize every little detail of his life, even down to washing their hands before they eat. So he's getting away from some of that. But another reason he's getting away from Jewish, heavily Jewish populated areas at this moment in time is because of the Herodian hostility that's ramping up. Remember King Herod? He had killed John the Baptist, served up his head on a platter at a party. And so he's, he's laying low, laying low a little bit. Um, but as we also know, Every attempt that Jesus has to lay low fails. Uh, I mean, no matter how much he tries to keep his messiahship a secret or, or um, cool down this excitement, this misunderstood excitement about his reign as king, um, every, every attempt to kind of cool that down, it ramps up. It, it, it heats up. So here he is down in the, the Decapolis Deca, that's 10 cities. There's 10 cities. It's a cluster of 10 cities that work together in that area. He's down in the Decapolis, and this is not his first time there. If you remember, he went to this area before to get away from Jewish populated areas. And what happened? He gets out of the boat, and that demon-possessed uh, man starts running down the hill towards him. We remember the man possessed with legion. And so he... he uh, cast out the, the demons that were in this man. He gives them permission. It's a very unique moment. He gives them permission to go into 2,000 pigs. What do the pigs do? They run off the cliff and die in the sea. And so 
the people in this area are like, whoa, that's weird, leave. They literally tell Jesus to leave. They're uncomfortable. This moment like catches them so off guard, they don't know what's happening. They tell Jesus to leave. And so this man who's been healed from demon possession, what does he do? Jesus, can I come with you? Suddenly this man's acting normal again. He's been cured uh, of demon possession. And he says, Jesus, can I go with you? Can I get in the boat? Can I just travel with you? My life's wrecked here. It's ruined. Can I just go with you and be one of your disciples? And Jesus says, no. Then he says something, and I want you to remember this because it's going gonna, it's gonna, uh, well, to come back to this point towards the end of my sermon. He says to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And it says that the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And so this place where Jesus was told to leave. They've had time to reconsider who Jesus is. They've had time to, to hear the testimony of the man that they knew was demon-possessed, living in a graveyard, cutting himself. You remember how just awful his existence was. And they see this man now uh, behaving normal and, and proclaiming this message of Jesus. And so he's had time to share his testimony there. They've had time to examine it. And now, what will they do then? Now that they've had time to hear this guy out, what will they do now that Jesus is coming back? What's up with they? I'm emphasizing they for a reason. Let's continue here in verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. So this time, they weren't telling Jesus to leave they were bringing to Jesus more people to be healed. Now, we don't know exactly who they were. I, there's no way I could prove that this is the same crowd or whatnot. But somebody, somebody there other than or, or perhaps even beyond this man who was demon-possessed believes that Jesus has the power to heal. And so they, plural, they are now bringing uh, people to him to be healed. And so... If, I, if someone ask, asked me to uh, put this to, to a movie form and I was uh, asked to use a little sanctified imagination here, I think it would be uh, just so beautiful to, when Jesus comes back to the Decapolis that this man who had been healed of demon possession had been sharing his testimony so much and he just found the next biggest outcast uh, in, in the entire Decapolis and that was the first person he brought. Jesus is back. Oh, grab him. We need to get him to Jesus. He changed my life. Maybe he can change this man's life too. So I don't know that that's what happened. I don't know if that man was even part of this moment. But it's beautiful to think about and certainly, certainly possible. But no doubt had to play a role in some way in how people responded to Jesus when he came back to the Decapolis. And so this man is brought to Jesus and there's... There's two disabilities that we're told about with this man. He was deaf, and he had a speech impediment. And so this combination, again, gives us a clue as to what type of life this man must have had. So today, if you're born deaf, you can get extensive um, training through a speech, uh, ex extensive help through a speech pathologist to learn how to talk. And, and so you can be deaf and still be able to communicate without a speech impediment. Um, but in that day, if you were born deaf, 
you were likely going to be a mute the rest of your life. And so these things went hand in hand. Someone who was born deaf was likely a mute as well. Um, but this man had a speech impediment. And so this man was likely not born deaf. This man is, is likely someone who could hear for a season of time and then became deaf. And, and so he had a hard time speaking because he couldn't hear himself talk anymore. It reminds me of, of my middle son, Emmett. When he was little, man, he had chronic ear infections just over and over and over at the time he was trying to learn how to talk. And maybe some of you remember Emmett at that age, whenever he would communicate with you, he like spoke a different language, right? He was saying words, but you could not tell a word he was saying because he, he was like hearing underwater for a couple of years, just always having ear infections. So we got tubes in his ears, we got him some speech therapy and bada boom, bada bing now he won't shut up and so everything's fine now we can fix these things now right we can we can we can treat these things but in that day uh, this guy did not have the speech pathologist he had no help so he spoke with great difficulty is what that greek word would literally translate to and so this was his chance this was his chance to get healed we got to get this man to jesus they begged jesus to lay his hand on him they begged Jesus to lay his hand on them. I, I, I just, I think that, that verse is worth thinking about, like just the expectation that, that's there in that verse, the hope that exists there. Do you, do you feel that expectation and that hope when you think about Jesus? I mean, if they could just, if they could just, if Jesus would just touch him, just his touch alone. That's the kind of feeling that was circulating about Jesus back then. We remember the, the lady who was healed after bleeding for 12 years. If I could just touch the, the fringe of his garment, if I could just be in his presence and just get, a, just get one finger on his clothing, then maybe I would be healed too. And so this expectation that was building everywhere that he went was just incredible. And so Jesus decided to heal this deaf man in a way that you'll probably never forget if you've never read this moment before because it's so peculiar. This is weird. It's weird at first, but when you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense. Let me read it to you. This is, let's pick up at verse 33 and read through verse 35. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Well, that's unusual, right? Jesus, uh, if it, just, just lay your hands on this man and pray for him and he'll be healed. And what's Jesus do? He takes him aside privately. His, he sticks his fingers into his ears. He spits and then he touches his tongue. What is going on here? Why is this so unusual? Well, have you ever communicated with someone who was deaf or, or became progressively deaf as they lived? I, I know with my, my papa who passed away this past November, he, he became progressively deaf and blind as he grew old. And we knew that deafness was coming a, a long way away, right? I mean, we, we knew in his condition he was going to get more and more deaf as, went, as time went, and he was completely deaf for like for the past decade of his life. He was almost blind, completely blind by the end of his life. 
Um, but he, and, and knowing that deafness was around the corner, like when I, I remember when I was little, it's like we should all start learning sign language. That was a conversation our family was having. And my, and my, my papa was uh, bilingual. He speaks Spanish and, and didn't even learn English until he was in his 20s. But he wasn't about to learn another language. It just wasn't going to happen. Sign language, like, no, nope, not going to do it. I'll be fine. He just took that posture towards it. And so when he became completely deaf, nobody knew sign language in my family. We had to communicate with him without sign language, and he couldn't hear us. So what do you do? Well, we had a little dry erase board for the past 10 years of his life that we would have, and he would take it along with him wherever he went. And if you wanted to say something to Papaw, sometimes you could get right in his bubble and say things really, really loudly, and he would, it wouldn't matter if he spoke loudly. He was trying to read your lips, but we would speak really loudly and slow. Uh, when we communicated with them but mainly we would use this dry erase board and so when we gather for events like Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever we'd sit by Papa and we'd we'd write down something to him to to keep him engaged and to communicate with him as uh, the family was gathering together and, and it was it was a really hard thing for us to do because Papa used to be the life of the party I mean he was the loudest of all of us and and the goofiest of, of all of us and he was always talking to everybody never met a stranger type of guy uh, but he, it, so for him to have that ability to communicate taken away, it was, it was devastating and, and very weird for our family. But as the years went on, he got even harder and harder to communicate with because he was losing his sight. And so it got down to where he, he just, you know, he had a little bit of sight in, in one eye. And so we were losing senses to communicate with my papa. I mean, we were down to like touch, taste, and smell. So if you handed him his, his favorite food, which was vanilla wafers and coffee, man, he, he understood that. He was, he was as happy as a clam with vanilla wafers and coffee. It didn't matter how bad a day he was having. If he had those two things, he could make it through the day. That was his jam. But otherwise, you had to touch him. You had, if you wanted to communicate with Papa, you had to touch him. You had to be in his bubble. And so when we went to visit Papa in Indiana, we would have to, to touch him, hug him, and that's when he lit up like a Christmas tree because he could understand that, right? And so he'd, you'd get in his face, and, he, and he'd say, hey, you know, he'd look at you with that one eye. If Amanda would go, like, give him a hug, he'd grab her face and, you know, stick his one eye, like, right in her face to see who it was, and he'd, you know, hey, hey, babe. Every, every woman was a babe. So, hey, babe. <laughs> he, would, he would say that when he'd figure out, oh, I haven't seen you for a while, babe. And, and so... That's how you communicate with someone when neither one of you knows sign language, right? Or, and you're losing senses. And so this moment in which Jesus is interacting with this deaf man, he wants the deaf man to understand what's happening. He wants to communicate with him specifically. He wants that man to understand. So he takes him, private, takes him aside privately away from the crowd. He does that for a couple of reasons. One, we could say that the last time he was in the Decapolis, it was quite the spectacle, right? 2,000 pigs dying. And so if he's going to do a miracle this time, maybe he wants to take him aside and not make it as known so that the people that aren't fans of him in the Decapolis don't come out of the woodwork. That could be part of it and certainly perhaps was. But he took him aside privately, I think primarily, as an act of compassion. He wanted to touch this man in a way that he could communicate with him. He was signing to him without knowing sign language. He put his fingers in his ears. You think what that would communicate to this, this man. He takes him away privately. He sticks his fingers into his ears. He is pointing at this man's biggest problem. 
making it obvious that I am interacting with you right now because you can't hear. And so he, he, he touched him in a way that would make him aware of what was taking place. Now, it's interesting, too, like, there's always critics of the Bible out there, right? And I like to read what the critics have to say about Scripture. And, and a lot of the classes I even took in college regarding uh, uh, Bible, I took New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 at, at IU, taught from a secular point of view. The whole class was dedicated to what the critics had to say. And, and what they would teach you when you get to moments like this is like, oh, well, the reason this is only in Mark is because this is Jesus behaving like a witch doctor. And so he would do all these weird things anytime that he would heal someone to, like, because that's what witch doctors do. And, and so Luke and John and Matthew, they don't even mention this moment because they don't want to draw attention to that aspect of Jesus' ministry. But that, that's, that's, that argument is, is so lame. It, it, this, he, Jesus is so clearly communicating with the deaf man here, um, and he's touching him in, in order to do that. Not to mention... Jesus sometimes doesn't touch people at all when he heals them, right? Jesus sometimes isn't even in their presence when he heals them. Like in the previous paragraph we just studied last week, when he healed the Syrophoenician daughter, the Syrophoenician's daughter, cast out the demons, she, her daughter wasn't even there. It was, she was somewhere else in a different location, and that happens multiple times in the New Testament. You see that Jesus heals someone, and he's not even with them. And so the argument that Jesus always did it in this witch doctor fashion is, is uh, really lame and, and uh, just a poor uh, argument. But he's, he's communicating with him. He's, he's healing him, but before he heals him, he wants him to understand what's about to happen. So he spits. Well, what's that for? <laughs> uh, it says after spitting, he touched his tongue. Where did Jesus spit? What, what did he spit on? We don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. There's three moments in the, in the New Testament where Jesus heals someone and spit is involved. There's this moment, and then there's a moment in a couple of chapters we're going to see in chapter 8 of Mark where he, splits, he spits in a blind man's eyes. And then there's a moment in John chapter 9 when he heals a blind man, but he spits on the ground, he makes mud, puts it in the blind man's eyes. We remember that story as well. So why does he spit here? We, we don't know. It doesn't even tell us where he spit. We can take a couple of guesses. He just got here from a boat. You know, he's in the Decapolis. He's been traveling. He's dirty. You ever got off a boat? It's especially a smaller boat, like at the at the edge where there's not a dock and stuff. Like, you get muddy. There's the reason to believe he could have really dirty hands. He's muddy. He's been traveling. He's he's pulled the boat up, whatever, I mean, and he, he's coming to the Decapolis here immediately, he's met with these people, and so maybe he's like wiping off his hands before I communicate with this guy in a way that's going to touch his tongue to, to make him understand I'm healing not only his hearing, but how he speaks as well. He spits on his hands, wipes it off, and then touches his tongue. I don't know. That's just it's some speculation. Maybe that's what's happening here, but um, Mark wants us to have that detail anyway. But put yourself in the man's shoes. You, you're deaf. You, you can't speak well, uh, if at all. Jesus takes you aside privately. He points at your ears. He touches your tongue. What do we see Jesus do next? Well, he's still communicating in a way that's like sign language. It says that he looked up to heaven and he sighed. 
You don't have to hear a sigh to know someone's sighing, right? I think this is still Jesus communicating to him in body language. And so he's, he's expressing to this man, I, I am praying to God and I'm grieving your disabilities. I'm grieving your condition in an act of prayer towards God. <sighs> we can go to God in prayer. He's letting this man know that he's being healed and that he's being healed through prayer. He says, Ephatha. So this is an Aramaic word. And so now we know that Mark, he's targeting Gentiles with his gospel. One of the reasons we know that is because from time to time he translates for us. Jesus would have spoke predominantly Aramaic. When you get to the, the Decapolis, they would have spoke Aramaic and Greek. And a lot of places would have spoke uh, Greek every, everywhere. Uh, people would have been speaking Greek. And so when he... When he, though, writes his gospel, he writes it in Greek because he's targeting Gentiles. And so when he gets to this moment, this word, ephatha, he translates it for his readers. Be opened is what that means. And he's translating for his Greek readers. And instantly the deaf man could hear. Instantly the deaf man who had a speech impediment, had difficulty speaking, he spoke plainly. He spoke plainly because he could hear himself. Let's continue in verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Well, there's a familiar line in the Gospel of Mark. He does a miracle, and then he tells people to keep a lid on it. Keep this on the down low. Now, if you remember what I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, what happened the last time he was in the Decapolis and he did a miracle? He heals the man, and what's he say to the man that he healed? Tell everybody. He tells that man after he's healed, no, you can't go with us. No, you, you, can't be one, you can't travel with me and be one of my disciples because I want you to go back and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. I want you to go back into the Decapolis and tell everyone how God has shown you mercy. Tell everyone. But this time, he says to the deaf man, don't tell anybody. Tell no one. Why? Why does, why, why does Jesus tell people sometimes to tell everybody and sometimes tells them, don't tell anyone? I think it's a reasonable question. It's because a lot's happened since last time he's been at the Decapolis. Last time, nobody knew who Jesus was. His, his, uh, his fame had not reached its peak yet. It's towards the beginning of his ministry. But this time, a lot has happened. As a matter of fact, you got, uh, I mean, everyone in Israel knowing who Jesus is at, at this point. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody's flocking to where he's going to the point which he goes back to the Decapolis. People are showing up immediately. And they're ready to be healed. His reputation precedes him. And we also remember, like at the moment in which he fed the, the 5,000 and their families, they're starting to get excited about Jesus and his reign as king in the wrong way. They have the wrong idea about his kingship. They, they are hoping for this, this military king that will get an army together and defeat Rome and, and bring Israel back to the, like the days of King David, like the, the golden age of Israel. That's what they're hoping for. That's not what Jesus has come to do. They're getting the wrong idea. And so people that want to spread that idea, he's like, whoa, 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 go away, go home. That's, that's, not what, that's not what's about to happen here. And so he's trying to, again, cool down that misunderstood narrative. And so he's in that mode when he gets back to the Decapolis, and he's saying, hey, don't, 
don't tell anybody uh, about what just happened. And then it continues here in verse 37. It says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so Jesus, uh, he's, he's giving us this snapshot that Isaiah prophesied about back in Isaiah 35. The deaf were able to hear, the mute were able to speak, the, you know, the ears of the deaf were unstopped. The mute tongue shout for joy. They were literally taking this man who had been unable to communicate around the Decapolis and he was proclaiming to everyone, after telling him to not say anything, that they go around and they, they tell everybody all the more. He's telling everybody. He's shouting for joy that what Jesus had done for him. So when we study the life of Jesus and these miracles, we get these, this real-life snapshot of what Isaiah would prophesy about. And it teaches us about the kingdom that is to come. It teaches us about the kingdom that is right now, though, as well. Right? Because the kingdom of God, what we learn in the New Testament, and this is so important if you want to wrap your mind around the New Testament, the kingdom of God that Jesus preached about and that he inaugurated, it is right now. But it's also not yet. That's, it's, it's twofold. It is right now he inaugurated his kingdom. He established himself as king with his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. But it's not yet. He will return and sin will be completely eradicated. But there is a sense in which these snapshots, they teach us about what is not yet, but they also teach us about right now as well. We don't want to discount that because miracles still take place. As a matter of fact, anytime someone becomes a believer, it is a snapshot of a day in which everyone will become a believer. Anytime someone becomes a believer, it is a miracle. There, we, we are born into this world deaf to God. We are born into this world a mute with regard to shouting the praises of God. We don't do those things naturally because we come into this world corrupted by sin. We have a sin nature. It isn't until God draws near to us and changes us and gives us a new heart and we are born again. And it isn't until that miracle that happens in our day still, every day, and has happened in this church before, that people can hear God for the first time. They can, they, they, they can sing God's praises in a meaningful, actual, you know, uplifting, prayerful way. So that when that happens today, and again, I've seen it happen in this church. I've seen people come to the journey for years, and they're just not believers. They, they're, they're deaf to God. They, they come reluctantly, and then it's like a, a switch flips. They, they hear this, this gospel message. They hear about these moments. They, they learn about these snapshots uh, of the kingdom to come. And, and in hearing about the gospel of Jesus, they become a believer. They're their ears that were spiritually deaf to God suddenly hear God. Their mouth that would superficially sing the praises of God now sing it in a real genuine way. This snapshot is something that we see and long for today. And every time we have church, every time we, we live our lives and take this gospel message into the world, this is Jesus expanding his kingdom in our time right now. But there will come a day in which all of these snapshots will be just an everyday reality. And so we, we as we take communion today, we want to make sure that we, we take time to meditate upon the fact that we were given life. 
because of this gospel message. No one becomes a believer apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one becomes a believer apart from God intervening and giving us a new heart and giving us the ability to believe. That is the gospel message. And so when we take communion today, take time to meditate upon just the grace of God. God has shown you mercy. You got grace. You're a believer and you're a part of the kingdom of God because you got grace. Take time to meditate upon that and thank God for that, that we can proclaim that truth and that gospel message right here in our time that we can see it expand and be a part of that expansion. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this moment, this really, just really cool moment in which we see you in an act of compassion taking this man aside and healing him of these disabilities that he lived with on a daily basis. And Lord, you did this for a reason, not so that this man could have the perfect life from that point on. For all we know, he could have lived a few more years and, and got injured on a work site and lost his hearing again. For all we know, we don't know what happened to this man after this, but we do know that he died. This miracle was a snapshot so that, Lord, all of us who came after him could look at this snapshot and we could understand the kingdom that is to come so that we can begin at least in a small way to wrap our minds around it with this kingdom that we are a part of now and that we will walk into eternity with you to be in. It's, it's free from all of the effects of sin. It'll be like everyone hearing. It'll be like everyone shouting your, your, your praises. Lord, we, look, we long for that day. Lord, we, we pray that right now as we walk into a time of communion, we could have a little snapshot of that time to come as we worship together. So, Lord, I just pray that you would bless us. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand.